is lit. Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on a quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter and Instagram at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at www.christyalexanderhallberg.com. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this premiere episode of Rock is Lit. I am so excited about this podcast. I came out of the womb a music lover, and I've published quite a few short stories and essays, and now a novel, all with music themes. So it's amazing to be able to continue to put my passion for music and literature together in this podcast. I'm grateful to you all for listening, and to Pantheon Podcast Network for bringing me into the family. Now, on with the show. I'm thrilled to welcome novelist, playwright, visual artist, and songwriter Jeff Jackson, author of the novel Destroy All Monsters, The Last Rock Novel, which centers around the killing of bands as they perform on stage by members of their own audience. Later, I'll talk with Nathan D. Duvall, host of The Lucid Show on 103.3 Asheville FM, about real-world examples when this kind of violence has erupted at live shows, so stick around for that. But first, we're joined by Jeff Jackson. Jeff is the author of several highly acclaimed novels, including Destroy All Monsters, which is the focus of our discussion in this episode. Destroy All Monsters was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 2018 and received praise from such esteemed authors as Don DeLillo and Janet Fitch. His novella, Novi Sad, was published as a limited edition art book and selected for best of 2016 lists in Vice, Lit Reactor, and Entropy. His first novel, Mira Kapura, published in 2013, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and featured on numerous best of the year lists, including Slate and Salon. His short fiction has appeared in a variety of journals and been performed in New York and Los Angeles by New River Dramatists. Jeff holds an MFA from NYU and is a recipient of fellowships from the McDowell Colony, Barishnikov Arts Center, and Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. He lives, writes, and makes music with his band Julian Calendar in Charlotte, North Carolina. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad to be here and honored to be here on the first episode of the show. All right. Well, like any good concert, at Rock is Lit, we open with a warm-up act before we get into the main jam. So let's play a set of five questions to get this party started. What's the first album or record you bought? The first album I bought was Voulez-Vous by ABBA. Uh, Not a very rock and roll choice. (laughs) And and their most disco album uh, ever, I think. Uh, Yeah, I think I got it when I was like six or seven. Uh, Okay, so you didn't buy it with your own money then? This was something that was given to you? No, I picked it out. Well, I picked it out in the store, but I think my grandmother bought it for me. Um, I grew up in Aruba, which is... uh, was part of the Netherlands Antilles at the time. And so like the music we would hear was very European. So ABBA mm-hmm. was sort of uh, kind of as rock and roll as, as it got <laughs> uh, there. So yeah, that, that was my first record. I, I think I, I liked it pretty well. And then uh, I think I didn't listen to ABBA for like another 20 years and uh, eventually sort of came, came back around to ABBA like uh, a, a long time later. So what was your most memorable live music experience? And I know that you're in a band called Julian Calendar, so you can sure include yourself if you want to. Oh, no, no. My, my most memorable is definitely not with, uh, not with Julian Calendar. Uh, it's funny. There have been so many for so many different reasons, uh, but I'll pick this one just because I was talking about it uh, with some friends recently. It's, there's this Scottish band called uh, the Dog-Faced Hermans. Uh, and they were around in the 80s and the 90s. It was sort of a post-punk band. It was just a little too, they're just sort of out of time. They were mm. a little bit late for the initial sort of post-punk scene. And they were uh, way too early for the post-punk revival. But they're this really, really extraordinary band uh, led by this woman, Marion, who played trumpet and sang. And uh, my friend Dave and I went to go see them at this small club in Hoboken, New Jersey at Maxwell's. And uh, they were opening for this other band, Helios Creed, who we're also interested to see. But the Dogface Hermans were so extraordinary that we left without hearing a note of the main band. 
because we didn't want to sully our experience. And it was, it was just absolutely extraordinary. Um, the lead singer, she, she donned this kimono and this turban before, uh, right before coming on stage. It was this sort of literal sort of whirling dervish of just energy and charisma. Um, uh, this incredible sort of like, it was noisy, but it was also precise. It was tuneful. I remember at one point the guitar player took a, a lid of a tin can and threaded it through the strings of his guitar and then hit it with a metal <laughs> stick and it created this steel drum sound that was really beautiful. And then at the end, he brought out this viola and they played this incredible high energy version of this Romanian folk song. And it was just this magical, magical performance that uh, my friend and I had never left before, like the main band, especially a main band we were interested in. But we looked at each other and, and simultaneously were like, I think we should go. And the car ride back, it was about 40 minute drive. We didn't even listen to any music. We didn't want Good any grief. sounds to sort of like ruin what we had seen. And yeah. so I think, I think if I could go back and experience any show again, it would be seeing the dog-faced Hermans at Maxwell's in New Jersey, I think about 1994. Excellent. If you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band, who would it be? And what's one question you would ask? I think if I could, I guess it would maybe be... Uh, I guess it would sort of be going back in time, I suppose, but I'd love to interview like Lou Reed in sort of the early days of the Velvet Underground and ask him about and ask him about songwriting and ask him about how he sort of balances lyrics with just the incredible sonic density that the band was generating in their, you know, on their first two oh, records yeah. in particular. Um I'd be really I, I I don't think that they were actually famous enough at that point that anyone was taking Lou seriously as a songwriter. And I think that his sort of, uh, the Lou Reed persona sort of calcified, uh, you know, by the time people were interviewing him, he was sort of like Lou Reed in quotes or in all capitals. And it'd be really interesting to interview Lou Reed um, be before he was uh, sort of a celebrity and was just uh, a guy creating this extraordinary music. What's on your playlist now? Oh, uh, right now I'm listening to uh, I'm listening to the new record by uh, the band Destroyer. This guy Dan Bihar, uh, Labyrinthitis, mm -hmm. which is really really wild and, and and great to hear a guy who's I don't know this is like record number ten or eleven, like still pushing himself, and still has like moves on this album. They're like, wait, they just did what? Um, and makes it work. Like it, the music really still feels like very fresh and vital, but it still feels like his voice, his songwriting, his lyrics. Um, and so that's been one that's been on heavy rotation. I also just ran across this really great compilation of demos that the band Wire did, uh, sort of between uh, their first three records. And it's a lot of songs that never made it onto their records and so it's like 18 new wire songs that they just demoed for uh the record company and it's just extraordinary material and, and it's kind of uh it kind of shows a bridge between the different albums because each album sort of felt like such a large jump and uh, um these demos sort of show the transitional steps that they never previously revealed to the public okay last question of the set which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity? I mean, that's a, I guess the sort of like the divide there is like whether it should like it'd be whether nice to see some like really obscure band sort of get their due in a novel that might that might sort of turn more people on to them. Um, yes, yes. In which case, uh, you know, a band like I don't know, maybe the Raincoats, who are sort of like a favorite band of mine, who have never who've never quite gotten there do um would would be a choice but then they're also like those bands that are so sort of mythical there's so much to there's so much to dig into in terms of them that might actually like there's probably right. like a really interesting story there um i mean a band these are all older bands but like 
a band like Throbbing Gristle, who like I think there's so many weird stories about them and their shows that there's probably a novel in just like describing like any four or five given performances. Great answers, Jeff. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Jeff Jackson. And make sure you stick around for the last segment of the podcast when Lucid show host Nathan D. Duval pops in to talk about actual instances when musicians have been attacked by fans at their concerts. Back in a moment. This is Jeff Jackson, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. And we're back with Jeff Jackson, author of Destroy All Monsters, The Last Rock Novel. Since this is the first episode of Rock is Lit, let's talk about what makes a great rock novel. You wrote an article in Electric Lit in 2018 entitled Seven Candidates for the Great American Rock and Roll Novel. So let's start there. Give us a loose description and some examples. So for me, I think a really great rock novel is something that tries to capture the feeling of the music that tries to Uh capture the sort of propulsion and spirit um, of the music that has some of its immediacy, its mystery, its sort of raw power, its identity shifting allure. And I think for me too, a lot of the best rock novels are often about the fans as much as the musicians, if not more Exactly. Well, I also think rock is as much attitude as rhythm and beats. And as such, I would I would even call, say, S.E. Hinton's YA novel, The Outsiders, an honorary rock novel, just because it rings through with that anarchy of rock. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I do think like sort of how you define, I mean, I think there are a lot of valid definitions of a rock mm-hmm. novel, for sure. Um and there are some that are maybe even sort of like infused with music that isn't rock that still has sort of a rock and roll attitude right. to it. Um, or some where music might even be in the background and not necessarily the subject of it. Or, um, or sort of like the location, it, if, it, if it's something, it's thinking about um, the book Paint It Black by Janet Fish that takes place in like a lot of rock and roll clubs. Yes. And is part of that environment. And I think that kind of makes it a rock novel, but like a less obvious one. It's a great book. So onto your novel. I'm curious about the title. Are you making some sort of commentary on the rock novel subgenre by titling your novel, Destroy All Monsters, The Last Rock Novel? Why the last rock novel? Well, um... To be perfectly honest, that was the subtitle was something that the publisher insisted upon. It wasn't my choice. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't fully object to it because I think the book is trying to imagine like what does an endpoint look like. The book is a sort of apocalyptic rock novel and looking at like what what happens if. Um, if you sort of bring rock and roll, like what does the end point of rock and roll look like in terms of like its viability as a cultural force? What happens if you get to some sort of like year zero of rock and roll, but like that year zero isn't a punk year zero. It's more of like a Khmer Rouge <laughs> year zero. Yeah. You know, like a yeah. much darker, it's like a much darker year zero that maybe you, there's no like starting right. from, you know, it's maybe just a zero. There's nothing like beyond it. We're like, I think punk's year zero was like a very generative, actually creative thing. Like what if it's like, what if it is a sort of like more negative thing? Like what is that? What does that look like? I think also calling it the last rock novel was a, was a, was a sort of nod toward this idea of it not being entirely realist okay. too. That it sort of projected into this sort of imagined, you know, future. That it's not about necessarily the scene right now. That it's about, um, yeah, it, it's about something, something that's happening later, or almost, mm-hmm. almost in sort of like a, a folk tale way. Like, what is, what are these, what would these end times be? The publisher insisted on uh, 
Giving Destroyal Monsters, the subtitle of the last rock novel, which I was okay with, but I felt a little bit bashful about it because I knew that after the book came out, there were going to be plenty of really great rock novels that were going to be released. And that's certainly been the case. Um, that Chris Terry wrote a really great book called Black Card that deals with uh, racism in the punk rock scene. Uh, there's a book. Uh, there's a book called The Ruins. That is by Matt Osman, who's actually was in a rock band, was in the rock band Suede, which is quite wonderful. And of course, there's your own searching for Jimmy Page. And so I do feel a little bit sheepish about the book being called The Last Rock Novel, because if in any way people assume that it suggests that I think that there can't be great rock novels written after this, because it's, it's not the case. And it's been, you know, and that's been proven. Well, in, in case some listeners aren't familiar with the book, can you give us an elevator pitch synopsis? Sure. It, it's about an epidemic of mysterious shootings um, that happen at small music clubs, not just rock clubs, but small music clubs sort of all across the country where musicians are murdered on stage while they're playing. And the book takes place after the shootings have stopped, but no one's sure if um, the epidemic is fully over. And it takes place mostly in this uh, small sort of Rust Belt city called Arcadia um, in the aftermath of a shooting that's happened there. And it involves a band that's been asked to play a tribute concert to their friend who was killed in one of these shootings. And it also deals um, with a guy who has killed his girlfriend who finds herself sort of drawn into the violence uh, against her wishes and sort of entangle with this band and this concert sort of against her wishes. Pretty uh, damn timely. Even though it was written quite a few years ago, it, it's certainly relevant to all the shootings going on today. But It's also timely to coming out of uh, the COVID epidemic and the fact that music clubs have been closed for so long. Yes. And that, that's another sort yes. of weird thing. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of that, but a reader pointed that out that, uh, that the idea during COVID of going to a rock club and being in a crowded room with people was physically dangerous and was bad for your health yes. in a slightly different way than it is in the book, but that, that, that club music clubs had become a place of danger and that had to be shuttered as a result of that. It, well, the premise of musicians being killed while performing on stage says a lot about the artist audience relationship too, fandom and obsession and the current state of music, because as one of the characters notes about this nationwide epidemic of violence, the bands targeted aren't very good. So what preoccupations were you grappling with that motivated you to explore these ideas in your fiction? Well, I mean, the fact that the, the character saying the bands aren't very good is definitely just sort of the opinion, I would say, of that character, not necessarily the author's opinion. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, you know, I was thinking about sort of the epidemic of, um, of gun violence in this country that had happened. Uh, while I was writing it, I, I was thinking about a way to set it in an environment that felt distant enough that we might be able to, I might be able to see it in some fresh way. And um, it seemed like the idea of setting it in music clubs felt fantastical to me. And in the middle of, uh, toward the end of when I was writing the book, um, you know, there were shootings at the Bataclan Club in Paris or shootings in the nightclub in Miami. And it really felt like current events were sort of keeping up, or catching right. up to me. And sort of what had seemed like a fantastical conceit no longer seemed that. Mm -hmm. I was also thinking a lot about how, I don't, I think there's a lot, I think there's still lots of good, vital music being made, but I do feel like, in our culture, music has sort of lost its currency. It's lost its ability to sort of move the cultural needle that it used to have. And I think there's like such a glut of, of music out there that it's sort of hard to tell the signal from the noise. And I don't know if that's because, well, like you were saying, there's a glut of it, but maybe it's also because there's, there's such ease with which we access it. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think the ease of it is part of it. Um, I think the dematerialization of music is a big part of it. The fact that you don't, the fact that if you want to hear something, you can just go to Spotify yes. and, you know, 49 out of 50 times, there it is. Mm -hmm. um, 
you don't have to buy it. You're not invested in it. I mean, I remember there are so many albums that I bought that I hated on the first couple of listens, and they ended up being like some of my favorite records, but I stuck with it, frankly, because I had paid a bunch of money right. for it, and I wanted to try and get my money's worth. There's something I think about sitting with like the physicality of music that, that adds to its mystique, that adds to its allure, that gives you something to imprint upon. And it and it get and, and it also gives it a chance to maybe like imprint upon you as well. Mm-hmm. And so, I think also like some of the search for music is really mm-hmm. is really important. I think that those, I think a lot of those things have been lost. I think like it's oh, yeah. weird the democratization of music, the fact that it's so much cheaper to make a record these days. Um, like there's there's a lot of positive stuff in that, and certainly my band Julian Calendar has benefited from that. But I think there's also like you know the the unseen sort of cost of democratization means that like everything gets that there's so much out there that the music gets drowned out, and that we just sort of jump from one thing to the next. Yeah. That we're not sort of really that we're not pausing in the same way. It, it, it's weird too that the democratization of how you make music has weirdly, I think, given a lot more power to corporations. And I feel uh, I was talking with Dennis Cooper about this, and he's he's older than we are and has been around for a long time. And he said, you know, he said he said I feel like popular culture in terms of music right now is back to where it was in the fifties, where there's so much controlled by corporations mm-hmm. that like there's a lot of stuff interesting stuff happening between the cracks but in terms of what's happening in the po- popular culture it's more stifled than ever because there's so few avenues for things to break out and sort of upset the paradigm that corporations right. have so much more control over like what we listen to and how something is done and people are sort of at the mercy of algorithms they don't even understand yes do you think the same sort of thing is happening with books I mean, I fear, and I think one of the reasons I wrote this book is that, uh, the reason I wrote Disroyal Monsters is that I worried that it's happening to art across the board. Mm-hmm. That it's not just, it's not, that I think music is sort of the canary in the coal mine. It's been hit the hardest mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but I feel like books and and we're seeing it with um, movies and even with visual art. Like, I feel like all, like, all forms of art are really starting to lose their sort of cultural currency. Um, in ways that are really alarming, and yeah, it's it's scary. Yeah, it it is. Well, that link between violence and music is firmly established in your book with the dedication to Johnny Ace, whom you call quote the first rock and roll casualty. Uh, now, for listeners who don't know who Johnny Ace is, he was an R and B singer and musician who had a string of hits in the fifties. And he shot and killed himself on Christmas Day in 1954. Now, is the the jury still out on whether or not he committed suicide or was playing Russian roulette? Well, he was definitely playing Russian roulette. I think the the sort of the dark rumor is whether or not someone put a bullet in the gun and he didn't know. Okay. So, um, yeah, he was playing Russian roulette on Christmas night and he lost. And... um, the song pledging my love that was in the uh, that was in the can already went to mm-hmm. number one based on his death, and it's I think the first example of a song like that that had sort of like a, a singer's death sort of carried yeah. to the top of the charts. Forever, my darling, my love will be true. The main character in your book, teenager Zinni says of him and the song Pledging My Love, which, as you say, went to number one after his death, people say, and this is a quote from the book, people say he's the ghost that haunts rock and roll. They claim that song is cursed and bad things happen to people who perform it, end quote. That sort of lore is comparable to the legend of, say, Robert Johnson, the blues musician who's rumored to have sold his soul to the devil for fame and fortune, which harkens back to the story of Dr. Faustus, so what do you think it is about rock music and musicians that inspires that kind of mythology? I think especially sort of in bygone years they were you know musicians were sort of larger than life figures. They were um 
especially, mm. you know, starting in the 50s and 60s, there were people who stood outside of society. Um, you know, they were people who in the 60s and even up through the 70s were, you know, likely to get in trouble with the law just, just because of their lifestyle and who they were. I think they were, I think there's something particular about rock and roll that it was able, because it's a form that draw, that is so accepting of other influences it's it's like such a sponge that it's really right. brought in like poetry it brought in politics it brought in noise it brought in fine art it brought in these primal sort of transgressive urges and ideas this sort of rebel energy and it could spit it out in like a three-minute song and I think there's just something really appealing about I mean first of all just sort of the primalness of of music and sound is something that unlike a lot of other art forms, I mean, you almost sort of experience it with like your reptile brain. And there's also something great about yeah. something that's so digestible so quickly that like a novel is, you know, even a movie is so much more of a time commitment where rock, a great rock and roll song can give you all of that in like three minutes. Right. And so I think it's natural that like with that sort of like, who are these people who are able to create this sort of power? And especially, you know, in the days before social media, like when there was also so many questions about like, who, who are these people? Like, mm -hmm. um, and the people who would be interviewing someone like Bob Dylan were so clueless that the interviews would like actually give you less of an idea of who they <laughs> might be. Um, uh, like we were talking about with Lou Reed earlier, like no one, you know, no one really took them seriously. And the people who took them seriously were the fans. And it felt like the fans were on a frequency that like the straight right, right. wasn't on. And so like, these are the people who the fans could create these myths about because the straight world wasn't interested in them. So the style of destroy all monsters is really interesting because it sort of pays homage to vinyl in that it has an, an A side and a B side. You can read one side, then flip the book over and upside down and read the next. What inspired you to create that kind of structure? Well, I'm always, for me, I'm always interested in like trying to get the form and the content sort of as close as possible. Like I really believe like there really shouldn't, if things are working right, there's almost like no difference between form and content or there shouldn't be. Um, and so, but initially I had just written the A side and I hadn't been thinking of it as an A side. I was just thinking of like, that was the book. But as I sat with the, as I sat with the book for a while, there were just a, there were a bunch of stories and perspectives that didn't fit in the A side. And I had tried stories about the killers, stories about um, a funeral because there's so many deaths in the book, but in the A side, I didn't have a funeral. I felt like that was missing, but it just didn't belong in the book. Something that was dealing like with a sort of freshness of grief. And so these stories started to insist upon themselves, but it wasn't a part two. And I really did start to think about, as you said, like vinyl, but, but I also love cassettes too. Um, and so I started to think of like as a B side, because it wasn't a continuation, it was sort of creating this alternate universe where these different stories could be told, but stories that were, it wasn't just the same story told from a different perspective. It was like actually sort of set in like a different universe. So on the B side, like different characters live and die. Some of the characters swap genders. Um, and, and there's some real... And I think too, like the way the characters sort of navigate these very fraught emotional situations, they come up with very different answers to these problems in the A side and the B side. Um, and so in some ways, it, it's a sort of rock and roll move. But in another way, I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking about dub um, and sort of how dub reggae, you have sort of like the A side is sort of the main side. And then the B side is almost like the ghostly version of it. Well, and to continue with that, the conversation about A-sides and B-sides that the character Zenny and her soon-to-be boyfriend Sean have at their first meeting at the beginning of the novel reveals a lot about that structure. Sean asks Zenny whether she likes A-sides or B-sides more. She says she prefers B-sides because the songs take time to figure out. And Sean says, and I quote, they're the tunes where the bands bury their secrets, to which Zenny adds, their obsessions. So what do we learn about obsessions in the B side that we don't in the A side? That's a good question. I, I think the A side, 
in a certain way, is more about like the aftermath of the epidemic and the killings. And it's set, you know, a couple of months later. Um, we see we see some of it, but mostly it's sort of like the echoes of like what's happened, and um, and how people are sort of getting uh, getting through that. And the B side, it's really um, it's a lot closer to the action. Yes. And we really see the epidemic in the B side as it unfolds, almost in real time. And we also sort of see um, the survivors' grief in real time. We see a funeral that happens, you know, two days after someone has been killed. And we see like what that grief does to the characters, what it leads them to do, this sort of like obsessive acts that they sort of feel carried, uh, yeah. you know, that they need to carry out as a result of that. And so I think, I think the B side is, is about the immediacy of like the, the, the rawness of the right. aftermath. Now, are you more of an A side or a B side person when it comes to music? Oh, I do like a good B side. <laughs> um, and I do like, although I will say, I think it's rare that they're, I think it's the rare bands that really, still pay a lot of attention to the b-sides yeah but it's exciting for me like when there's a band like pavement who had so many great b-sides so many great songs like hidden away on eps that were never on the record or, or a band like suede or the smiths who some of like their b-sides were better than the songs that yeah. they actually released as a-sides um and it's exciting when bands like take time to you know, to, to really think about that and to really sort of curate it. I mean, the Beatles were great about that. And I loved how Paul McCartney talked about how like, oh, we knew what it was like to spend so much money on a single and not have a lot of money. So we really wanted to give you something with the B-side. We wanted to, you know, whether it was another great song or some like weird, you know, veering off experiment, like you were, you were going to get something that was going to be really thoughtful. And I, I always loved that. When I was coming up in the Chapel Hill music scene, like there was a, a lot of bands were putting out singles and you'd find really interesting stuff on the B-sides. But I feel like that sort of, that desire for singles has gone away, but there is still a little bit of a desire for albums. Sort of as music's become dematerialized and it's just up on Spotify or Bandcamp, it does... I think people are thinking about that less. I mean, Julian Callender, like we're thinking less about albums and we're thinking more about EPs. And like, what is, like, what can you do in three or four songs that still give people a little bit of an arc and an experience through something without asking them to have to listen to the entire thing because it feels like you only get that level of attention if you're already successful. It's sad, but it's also sort of a new reality, and it, and it and it has. I will say, like it's been an interesting challenge to start thinking in terms of EPs and thinking in a shorter way, you know, in a shorter span that way. But I, in a certain way, I think that's true of like all art. I mean, the way "Destroy All Monsters" is written, there's a lot of white space in the book, and it's written in these short bursts and short sections, and. Honestly, like that's because like I'm trying to take into account like readers' attention spans these days. Good grief! Do you, do you think that accounts for the the rise in popularity of flash fiction? I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. absolutely. I think absolutely. I mean, not that, to demean that that genre because it, that no, takes no, a different skill set, and, and and there's certainly some incredible pieces of flash yeah, fiction and I out think, there. And I, you know. And I love, I mean, one of my favorite authors is Thomas Bernhard, the Austrian novelist who uh, never, you know, basically doesn't have paragraph breaks, doesn't have chapter breaks. And it's just like one endless block of text. Um, he's amazing. But I also realize like that's a much, it's just a harder thing to put across these days. And for me, like, again, with the form and the content, trying to write a book that had the immediacy of rock and roll, I felt like I had to take into account yeah the sort of quick hits that rock gives you, but that also like help readers who have a shorter attention span these days that like having, you know, an unbroken block of text for 50 pages is just a much harder thing to get someone to go along for a ride on. You're a singer and lyricist for the Charlotte, North Carolina based band, Julian Callender. 
The band's album, Parallel Collage, is available on Bandcamp, as is Crimson Static, which is a series of four EPs that Queen City Nerve calls, and I quote, Charlotte's coolest art punk collective, end quote. How and when did you join the band? So I joined the band shortly after I'd finished writing Disroyal Monsters. Disroyal Monsters hadn't come out. And um, I was asked by my friend Jeremy Fisher, um, he asked me and um, another writer, a poet, Amy Bagwell, here in Charlotte, if we would work with him on a songwriting project. And it felt a little bit weird after having written written Disroyal Monsters, this apocalyptic rock and roll book, to be like, and I, I feel like in some ways, maybe like, maybe I joined, I, I said yes to the project partly in defiance to what I had written. Um, but I also didn't think, I didn't necessarily think it was going to go a lot of places. And the idea initially is that I was just going to write lyrics. And um, the thing is, Jeremy would give me music and say like, oh, just put lyrics to this. And, and I wasn't able to do it. Like I, I didn't have... It was trying to do like a crossword puzzle in another language. I didn't have the skills to do that. But what I could do is I could write some, I could write some lyrics that were fluid enough that if he would play like a riff, I could sing and create a melody over that for it. And I was very free with it because I was thought I was just doing it for Jeremy to sing, not for me. But we created a number of songs this way. And finally, Jeremy's like, you know what? You're singing these. Like, you should just go ahead and be the singer. I don't want to sing anyway. And so I sort of, found myself getting not roped into it, but I almost had like my bluff called. Okay. Um, And I think when I was younger, I would have been too self-conscious to do it. But one of the nice things about being older, I was just like, ah, screw it. I'll do it. (laughs) Um, Like, I don't care. I'll look like, I might look like a fool, but I don't care. And, um, and so, yeah, so it was really great. And one of the things I loved about the project was from the very beginning is Jeremy said, like, this is a, this is a song-oriented project. He says, I'm really interested in songs. And so um, as we sort of added members to, um, to the group and started to flesh out the songs and the compositions, it's always stayed that way. And so to me, I think of it not so much as a band that's about genre, as a band that's about song. And it's about what each individual song needs. And we try and think about that. And we never think about, oh, we can't do that because that's not our sound. Very cool. What's next for Jeff Jackson? Um, well, on the musical front, Julian Callender is finally playing some live shows for the first time in almost three years. Yay! And so we're super excited about that. We have a new drummer and we have all new material that we're, uh, we're going to be playing live. We have a bunch of, uh, during COVID, we worked on a bunch of new material um, that's real different. We tried to use a different sort of process of writing songs with a lot more sort of sampled rhythms, not using, many, not using as many guitars, using more... Um, keyboards trying to have more elaborate sort of melodies i think try to get both catchier and stranger at the same time um and so there'll be some of that material that'll be coming out in the coming months um writing wise i've been spending the past three four years or so working on a trilogy of books a trilogy of novels and so they're all very interconnected and so I decided that I needed to draft all three um, and then edit them oh, at the same God. time. And so, the, <laughs> yeah, I sort of like looking back on it, I'm like, <laughs> right. what the hell was I thinking? Um, <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, maybe not the brightest idea uh, at the time, but, but um, I'm getting close. The first two books are drafted. The third one's a third of the way done. Um, but it is something where I did realize that if I were to just write the first one and edit it and try and sell it, that like they they really are the stories mm. are so interconnected that I need to see them all at the same time to understand how certain events and certain echoes are sort of moved between the books. It, in a certain way, it's sort of an expanded version of the of the idea of the A side and the B side of Destroyal Monsters. Um, so it's sort of expanding that and twisting that in some different ways. But in some ways, I feel like Destroy All Monsters, the A-side and B-side, were maybe sort of a, a dry run for this trilogy of books. Um, I, I don't know whether they'll be able to be released and read separately or if they might need to be packaged together. But um, 
but yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on. And I'm getting, I'm getting close to the end with it, which feels good because it's been a very, very long process. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. Check out my in-depth interview with Jeff in the 2020 print issue of North Carolina Literary Review and my review of Destroy All Monsters, the last rock novel, in the 2020 online issue. Keep up with Jeff and Julian Callender at his website, www.deathofliterature.com. Don't go away, because after another short break, we'll be joined by Nathan D. Duval to give some historical context to the central premise of Destroy All Monsters, the killing of musicians as they perform on stage. Back in a moment. This is Nathan D. Duvall, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Welcome back to Rock is Lit. For this final segment, we're joined by Nathan D. Duvall. Nathan is a drummer, music producer, and music publisher who for a brief period was one of the top music supervisors working the advert campaigns for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Harry Potter, and Kill Bill. He helped launch Halo and Call of Duty before focusing his efforts on independent music publishing. His biggest productions are Requiem for a Tower from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and a cover of Led Zeppelin's Cashmere with the London Studio Orchestra and Damian Marley. Nathan now produces Lucid, a music and conversation program airing Mondays 2 to 4 p.m. on 103.3 Asheville FM in Asheville, North Carolina. He also edits these episodes down to a music and conversation podcast on Spotify called Lucid Pilot. Thanks for being here, Nathan. Thank you, Christy. It's great to be here. Rock is lit. Yeah, rock is lit. Okay, Nathan, here's a situation. In Jeff Jackson's novel, Destroy All Monsters, these mid-level bands all across the country are being attacked by fans as they perform on stage. So talk to me about real-world examples when this sort of thing has actually happened. It's an interesting topic because I found it interesting where there's a performer who is able to kind of get the crowd behind them and then maybe turn them towards another direction, almost like inciting a riot, or sometimes it goes, it goes wrong. Uh, a classic one would be Jim Morrison's meltdown in 1969 mm-hmm. in, my, in Miami. He, what, was, what was interesting, what most people, what they don't talk about is that he was obsessed with a theater group, and I'm going to forget the name of the group, but they were a controversial theater group at the time in the late 60s, and they would disrobe and then go out into the audience and provoke them. And that was the whole point was to blur the lines between reality and fiction, kind of like what you're, what you're just brought up is, is this issue of yeah. mass violence. And they were confronting the audience in, in, in many different ways to try and get them to think differently, almost like a, like a, a shock type therapy to get them out of their, their physical consciousness and, and you know, break on through as, as Jim, I can see why he was so, he was so into it. And so he, he wanted to take that out into the public with, with his, with his notoriety. He's like, wow, maybe I could really take what I learned. He apparently he saw them at USC and he went to every performance. I think it was around the same time in early 1969. And he he wanted to take this and then take it to the stage and and the problem was was he he had a severe drinking problem and and he was so drunk that when he by the time he got to the stage he he couldn't really do it properly and he could have if he you know if he but he just he suffered from alcoholism and he just blew it and he 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 did everything wrong that night and it went yeah it just went horribly wrong for him and they turned against him and what's interesting is is that this is I'm sure this is old as time is that. This this topic of like you know what how do you prevent it or 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 was there ever a rash of it I think it's it's been going on since the beginning of time where the uh, the crowd just goes crazy and there's nothing you can really do about it yeah and in in my own experience I I saw I saw Norwood Fisher of the band Fishbone they were opening for the Dead Kennedys in the early eighties I nineteen eighty two or three I can't remember the exact date but it was at the Hollywood Palladium and for whatever reason, just some knuckleheads. It was so, it's so common where a band like the dead Kennedys has a vision and their vision was, was anti-authoritarianism and uh, demagoguery, mm-hmm. uh, uh, right wing fascism, any, anything that was extreme. Um, and what's kind of ironic is that they they were pretty extreme just with their, their name alone. But 
they they were rally, you know raging against the the inability to be a punk rock fan or a punk rock band in Iran in Cambodia i mean they they would say it all the time in their songs and the problem was is that it would also attract this hardcore violent group and that would generally mean a group of skinheads borderline uh, nazi folks who who would go to these shows and they were hardcore racists and yeah. fishbone is uh an african american band and it's interesting they were, i just saw a post from them recently about being frustrated that they were always called the black rock band when when a lot of music was was pretty much invented by black people yes so it, it, uh, they had a song called uh, "Fly," or I think, or a lyric "Fly in the Fly in the Milk" or something like that. But they're doing their thing, and they're they're, they're one of the best bands on the planet. Mm. Still are. They're so incredible. And they were opening for the Dead Kennedys, and a bunch of these skinheads were in the front, and they they got up on stage. Somebody did and stabbed Norwood, the bassist, in the abdomen. Oh wow! And he he nearly bled out, and um, luckily they were able to get him out of there. And He's still alive this day, just being, he's the Lord of bass. He's the Lord of funk. He's <laughs> one of the best bassists on the planet. And I, re- I remember how, how awful that was. And I, I felt, I mean, I felt bad for obviously for, for Norwood and his family and the band. And then the dead Kennedys too, because they, they had, they had nothing to do. They, they had, they're so opposite of what they're all about. And here these, you know, complete knuckleheads who don't understand what they're doing, don't even get it. Uh, stab someone, and obviously the Ted Kennedys wouldn't have fish. They love Fishbone. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have them, and and so it, it's so common where where the the message from a band is misconstrued by fans or by fans who are unstable, which is very common. In fact, that that instance of Dimebag Daryl, where uh, you know Nathan, I can't remember his last name, uh, you know, went there and, and killed some killed him, and in front of his brother, and and. Uh, and it forced a, a cop to come up behind him and, and blow his head off. Yeah. And I remember hearing about the cop saying like it, it, it messed with him that, that it, it was so weird. The whole thing was so weird that having to come up behind someone and shoot them in the back of the head with a shotgun, it, it, it ruined that guy's life for quite a while that the cop who had to do that. And, and so it, it's so interesting how these, these things have, you know, happen where it has nothing to do with the band's message nothing and and it's just someone who's mixed up and does these horrible things and what's beautiful about people is that they just keep going forward and and they're just going to keep going to concerts and they're not going to let you know p- p- those who are who are mixed up and do these horrible things really get in their way from enjoying the 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 union the the you know the the passion of being at a show together and experiencing that cuz it it'll it'll never go away there'll always be some fool it's somebody who's just mixed up and and wants to make a point whatever their ridiculous point is like it's if it's religious the bataclan thing where that you had the islamic uh, extremists go in and and you know mm-hmm. shoot everybody up in the name of uh you know their god the guy who killed dimebag daryl i think his name was nathan gale um apparently he was upset at the breakup of pantera and was blaming blaming Dimebag for that. But then there was this other strange element to that, that police determined that he probably had schizophrenia, and he believed that Pantera members were stealing his thoughts and stealing his lyrics. So, And, and this is a guy who'd been discharged from the Marines due to mental health issues. So he had a lot of issues. He had a lot of problems. It, it's so bizarre. The whole thing is so odd. And like no one is immune. It's whether you're a pop star or even Jerry Garcia, Jerry Garcia was threatened in that, that, that last summer of 95, I think it was in Deer Creek. The, they called it the, the summer from hell tour, uh, not officially, but it just, everything just went wrong. And then, uh, you know, obviously Jerry dies later, but they, someone threatened uh, Jerry and they, I think it was in Deer Creek where they, they didn't bring up the lights or they didn't. I'm sorry. They didn't bring the lights down. They had the lights up the whole show, <clears throat> and and he of all people, like who would kill? Why would you want to kill Jerry Garcia? That the the just one of the most right, you know, one of the sweetest musicians, and and yeah, and yet there you have you have somebody who's just upset about the Grateful Dead and what they represent, and threatens, and I guess made a credible threat, and and then then the the fans rioted, and they ended up not doing the show the next night, but it's. And uh, and there's another I'm forgetting. There's a uh, Ari, I think it was Ariana Grande who had a a terrorist action in Manchester, you know, maybe four or five years ago, where somebody uh, detonated a bomb right right as people were exiting the show, and a bunch of people were killed. 
and it it just I don't think it'll ever go away. It's just whether you know you're a fan like those dance fans. <clears throat> the uh, there was an uh, like a I think it was a gay men's nightclub in Orlando that got shot up at some point. And it it just it doesn't the you know that that country show in Vegas where the the lunatic with the the uh, sniper rifle and all that it, it, it doesn't matter like the kind of music you can't blame it on any yeah. specific reason people are either against a certain artist or it's a it's an easy target to gain notoriety or they're just plain mixed up and yeah maybe they have schizophrenia like that it's such a we're people right it's just the the human it's just a part of the human condition we're, we're we're bouncing off each other and sometimes things just go horribly wrong. Yeah, I love that you said that no single genre of music is is singled out for this. There was a jazz musician, Lee Morgan, who was murdered while performing at Slug Saloon in New York in 1972. Wow. So th- this just runs the gamut. Christina Grimmie in 2016, and she wasn't on stage. I-, I think she was on The Voice. I'm not really that familiar with her, but I think she was on The Voice. And she had given a concert, but she was fatally shot while signing autographs following oh, the concert right, in Florida. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, geez, yeah. that's awful. It, there's so much that can go wrong just getting people together. Anything, you know, and that's I and I guess that's what what's interesting about this book is that he uses that as a backdrop. I I can't yeah, I can't wait to check it out. Definitely worth checking out. Nathan, thanks so much for being a part of this first episode of Rock is Lit. Catch The Lucid Show Mondays from 2 to 4 p.m. on 103.3 Asheville FM and pick up a copy of Jeff Jackson's amazing novel, Destroy All Monsters, The Last Rock Novel, wherever you buy books. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.